Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah wassalatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream on a beautiful Monday morning or Monday afternoon, noon, midday I would say. It's one o'clock here, standard Eastern time, one fifteen, And we got uh, four segments to our program today. The first segment is concerning the issue of fatawa and what are some of the best practices um, and something that you should look for in fatawa becoming, um, we can say, savvy readers of fatwa. I think that's that's one way to put it, to become a savvy reader of fatawa and fatwa. Um, so we're going to cover that. Secondly, we're going to cover, we have a guest. Sorry, secondly, we're going to cover something from the Shifa of Qadi Iyad. Of course, we always read from um, books of Sira, Sira-related matters. And today we're going to read from Qadi Iyad, uh, inshallah ta'ala. Next, after that, we have a guest. One of the young st- scholars of Syria is going to be our guest today. Oops, let me fix this thing here. There we go. We have one of the young scholars of Syria. He's, Ameri- he's British, in fact. And he's going to be our guest for a few minutes. And then we have the open QA. That's our schedule for the day. Let's get straight to the issue of fatwa. Recently, my friend sent me a fatwa that was beyond, um, we could say, unprecedented. And it was a fatwa regarding the engagement uh, of uh, breaking off an engagement. When a man breaks off an engagement. First of all, let's, let's actually just review here and, and learn a little bit. What is the purpose of engagement in the sharia? And is it allowed? Of course, engagement is allowed. And all an engagement is, is a commitment on both sides to enter into a deal. Okay. And it's really no difference than me saying to you, listen, um, uh, when you, uh, when your product comes out, inshallah, I'll buy it. I said, inshallah, it's not a contract, right? There is nothing contractual, right? Hey, uh, when you start your plumbing business, I'm going to use you, right? When, next time my toilet gets clogged. When you uh, start your flower business, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be you know, the first person to buy from you. It's a statement. There is no, no contractual obligation on either side. And one of the reasons to do this in marriage is, is to really remove, I don't want to say competition, but a man will get engaged to a woman. It's a commitment to marry at a future date so that no one else proposes to her. Okay, so you're, 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 that's the purpose of the khutbah. Okay. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that when two people are very close to making an agreement, either in trade, any kind of agreement, marriage or otherwise, then nobody should go in and try to make a better offer once they're close. If they're not close, then fine. No problem. So that's an engagement. Any, either side can break off an engagement. Let's first talk about what's the value of this engagement. There is a lot of value to engagement, okay? You both talk about the big things in life initially. Dean, politics, where do we want to live? How do we want to live? What is our goal in life, okay? Next thing that we talk about in a marriage talk is how do we want to get there? This is what we call vision and mission. So what is our vision? Do our visions align? Yes, they align. Okay, wonderful. How do we want to get there? Does that align? That's important too. 
but it's secondary. Nobody talks about what bus are we going to use, what transportation are we going to use before we talk about where we're going. You talk about where you're going first. This is these are important lessons for anyone who's going to get home. You pay attention so you can get married. Okay. Mawadda event, by the way. Wait, when's the when's the Mawadda event? August twenty sixth. I see you there, Omar. Definitely. Subhanallah. So you see here that uh, the first thing you talk about is when both sides generally see each other as attractive and within the ballpark is the vision of life. Next is the mission. How are we going to get there? Thirdly, the little specific things, right? And of course, you're going to ask about the person and do your due diligence on the side, okay? But these are the main things that you do. And then once this is in place and you're like, okay, I like this person. We, we align on the important things in life and they're attractive. Families pretty much get along. Have a couple family visits. Now you get engaged. Now what's the value of engagement? Why not get married right away? Because human beings are not like this. When you get, when you deal with somebody, you're deal, they're putting forth their best face forward. So you have a, a, a bunch of meetings with this person. Everything is good. Some time passes. You feel comfortable with it. Still, human beings have like there's there's sand at the bottom of the ocean, right? That is not you don't know what's in the sand when the ocean is clear and nice. A period of a few months of engagement, its value is that it allows you to start seeing their family more often, seeing their friends more often, seeing them in different states. Things will happen, okay? A death in the family might occur, a different wedding may happen, and you get to see their behavior. So you're kicking up some sand, right? And it's you're allowed to see now what is it, what is it like when the water's muddy? When is it like when... Um, People are tired. Things like that. Who are their friends? Are they hiding anything? They could be hiding something. That you can get away with hiding it for three months, but not seven, right? Things come out like that. And that is the value of engagement, particularly if you don't know the person that well. All right. So in this engagement period, what's halal, what's haram? There are no obligations at all and no permissibilities. Nothing haram has become halal. And nothing is obligatory upon you. At any given moment, anybody could say, listen, um, we're not comfortable anymore with this. We're out. Now, if they say that and they don't talk about it, it's just a little bit odd. And it's hurtful. All right? They usually should give a person a chance to explain themselves. Right? But sometimes there's no explanation. When the guy comes and, he, and, and, and all of a sudden... He never informed us that he has an STD. And you never thought about it, right? Like you never thought to, this guy's from the masjid. You never imagined once to ask the man, does he have an STD? Sometimes it's like that. You're just like, you never imagined to, to ask him that. And he says, oh, I got an STD. Discovered that. How did you discover it? Oh, I saw an envelope in the house while visiting. And I'm like, what is that? Oh, that's my test results. Okay, well, I have to tell you guys, I didn't tell you this before, but I have an STD. That's a game changer, right? How about this? A guy, his credit score is so bad, he's going to need his wife to rent an apartment, to rent a car, to buy a car, to buy a house. That's a game changer. Like your credit score is that, is, is that bad? You might not be able to live in the country anymore. You might be so, you know, um, blacked out of, of, of any kind of purchase. Your credit is that bad. 
you won't be able to live here anymore. So these are game changers that would all come up in the process of this. You, he may be part of a cult, that you, a secret cult, right? And Or, or she may be, just to be equal, because uh, it could go both ways. So that's the point, okay? It could be any of these bizarre things that come up. And I'll tell you something. There was one time an engagement where man and woman got engaged and the man was contacting a marriage, a woman who sets people up for marriages while engaged to the other girl. He didn't know that they, they knew each other. And she calls and says, hold on a second. Hold on. Aren't you engaged to so-and-so? Yes, so-and-so. This is how he spells his name. Yes, this is how he spells his name. Is this his bio data? Yes, this is bio data. I said, well, listen, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but he, he reserved you, but he's still shopping around. You know that the guy did that. Could you believe that? That's what he did. He reserved the girl by getting engaged and still shopping around. Now, I'm, I'm only giving examples, bad, uh, bad examples of the guys, right? But the point being is that that is the value of taking things slow in important matters so that information can rise up. And you just don't want to rush these things. As for the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, this has to do with ibadat. The best of goodness, is that what you rush to? That has to do with ibadat where you can never be harmed. Like, should I make wudu now so that I have the barakah of being on wudu? Or should I... Um, Go home first and make wudu after that. No, make wudu now. Rush it. Rush the good. Should I start memorizing Quran now or should I wait until I graduate? No, start now. Khairul birri ajiluhu does not have anything to do with the contracts that you enter into where you may be harmed. Khairul birri ajiluhu. So let's hire someone quick, any old person. No, that's not how things work. All right. So. That's the concept and idea of why people get engaged in the first place. Are people allowed to break off their engagements? Yes. Is there any punishment to do so? No. There is a courtesy. The courtesy is to inform them why, and of course it's going to be emotional, it's going to be dramatic. You better have a good reason at that point. Now, if you're playing games with people, and you're just breaking off an engagement because you feel like it. Okay? You have the sin of it, but you have done nothing unlawful. You have the sin of hurting people and playing around, but you've done nothing unlawful. It's just like buying a home. I'm very close to buying this house, and we got the guy's hopes up, and everyone's hopes up. Then I said, yeah, I changed my mind. I don't feel like doing it. For a home, is no big deal. But for a life and a marriage, it is a bigger deal. Right, But in the same, lawfully, it's the same. Like, legally, it's the same. So what this um, summary of a fatwa recently said that it should be rendered, the man should be rendered to have to pay 25% of the dowry. He should get punished by the sultan, and he should be suspended from marriage for a year. <laughs> Could you believe this? This is worse than Roger Goodell. Of course... The fatwa was sort of laughed off the internet, but it brings up a bigger point, okay? And our guest today he is in the world of fiqh, and I think he's going to totally agree with about what I'm about to say. 
and that is there. There are really two things that I think should happen uh, for Fetzwa. Number one, if you're not really well known, okay, and that's a first of all, a mufti doesn't come out of nowhere. A mufti is always in advance. He's a student, then he's an advanced student, then he's an assistant for a mufti. And then years later, after we all have seen his progression, he becomes a mufti, right? Like, you don't become a world heavyweight champion in boxing out of nowhere. First, you're boxing at the teenage level. Then you're boxing at the featherweight. Then the next weight. Then the next weight. Then you're finally making that heavyweight. Then you lose. Then you win. Then you finally fight for the belt. So if you're truly a mufti, you don't come out of nowhere. We all know you in the world of fiqh. You know, we're going to know your name. So your fatwa will be authoritative, will be recognized. You are somebody. Let's say you're not that famous. All right, you studied privately and secretly with every, with shiuch, or let's just say privately. Then the shiuch authorized you as a mufti. Okay? Very odd. Right away authorized you, but you've never been anywhere. They've never sent you somewhere, made you teach a class, made you write an article. But it could, let's say it happens. So why don't you tell us all, tell the world, who your shiuch are, who authorized you, okay? Why do we need that? Because if you screw up, who do we go to, right? If you screw up, who am I calling? Who's your personal referee that will put you in check or correct your mistake? That's number one. Number two, so, you, so list out for everybody the public, contactable, traceable, Shiuch, not, don't tell me, I studied with the biggest sheikh in uh, the African rainforest. Is there rainforest in Africa? In the African desert. I meant to, I was going to say Amazon rainforest. It was on the tip of my tongue, but. Oh, in the African desert. Oh, really? How do I get to him? No, no, there's no electricity there. Nobody can get to him. So you're selling an imagination now, right? There's no way for me to know if you're right or wrong. If this is true or not, there's no way to, it's not about what's true. It's about what's verifiable. Okay. Next thing, when you actually publish a fatwa, let's say, you know, I'm going to publish the fatwa on Bitcoin. I did a five month research, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you also publish with it? What the shiuch said about this fatwa? How's that? Like when I get a book, I look at the back of any book. I have here this book by Imam Zaid. I mean, it's an innocent book. It's a, it's a commentary on Risalat al Mustarshidin. There's no fiqh here, there's no rulings or anything. It's a known book. But he still tells us that this is an excellent translation. Kenneth Honorkamp. Aftab Malik, excellent book. Okay. All right. All sorts of different people will comment on the book, right? Will tell us something about the book, right? So right off the bat, I feel that this is a trustworthy source. If people followed these protocols and procedures, you will not end up with blunders. Okay. When you have teachers and ijazas, does that mean you'll never make a mistake? Of course not. You will still make mistakes. But what does it protect you from? Protects you from blunders, number one. Blunders. Big mistakes. Embarrassing. Career-ending mistakes. There are career-ending mistakes, right? And it will protect you from prolonging in those errors. Because when you have shiuch, you have classmates, you have a whole world around you that will protect you, that is, will guide you, that will talk to you. Okay, That's the whole concept and idea.
All right, let us now turn to our guests, mashallah, out of Luton. His name is Sheikh Nuruddin, and we have him here. I watched his live stream yesterday, uh, uh, sorry, last weekend, where he they talked fiqh. And before we get into your uh, personal uh, uh, biography and background and all your life in Syria, I first want to welcome you to the live stream. Uh, so welcome to the Safina Saidi, nothing but facts in the Safina Saidi live stream. Ahana wa sahana. Alhamdulillah. It's an honor to have you. And now you are in Luton. And as I said earlier, we're trying to highlight some of the du'at, a'imma, shiyukh, mu'allimin, mudarrisin, that are on the youth side of life and are available out there in England. So if you are listening in England, uh, our guest is out of Luton. And I had went to Luton on the tour, by the way. So let me ask now, do you teach out of a masjid or an institute in Luton? Um, I, I do sometimes teach when I say MashaAllah. I have a Shaykh Nasir Masjid, which is, I would describe that as my uh, hometown, if you like. Okay. Um, I also uh, deliver a, 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 an English teacher. You could call it a Shaykh although at the moment, because uh, I have an issue with my knee, yeah. And that's uh, mainly on YouTube, or is it in a uh, physical location? Nice. Okay, good. So I'm going to just uh, put the website up on, uh, uh, on our YouTube uh, chat. So now let's get straight to this topic of fiqh. And I understand that you teach Shafi Fiqh. Is that correct? Hanafi Fiqh. Okay. Now, because uh, the Damascus connection, I thought maybe it's Shafi Fiqh. But do you you heard what I said when you were backstage about issuing a fatwa? First of all, let me clarify for the audience that there's difference between general istifta and fatwa. If someone's asking about a ruling that is known and already discussed, an imam or a sheikh will either know the ruling or he'll look it up in the books something in the reliable books. But when we say fatwa, we're talking about new matters, right? Something that's new to the community. What do you think of the two conditions that I think that, I think this is something that's universal, I think. Uh, uh, new matters often are described as contemporary matters. Um, uh, the way I look at it, with, with contemporary matters, we should be able, we should have a recognition of who the more senior shuyukh are, um, and those are the people who should really engage with that fatwa. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost inevitable, in my experience, um, with the contemporary issues, it's almost inevitable that you will have a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. Especially if they're contentious issues, difficult issues, and that's something people need to be aware of and need to be ready for. It's something that's not explicit, of course, neither in Quran and Sunnah nor in the Nusus, the texts mm -hmm. of the Madhab. Um, and it's a fairly contentious issue. It's not clear cut. It's not something like, is a laptop permissible or not? Yep. Can we drive cars or not? You know, something 
organ transplants, etc. Um, things which are much more difficult and there's multi, multiple aspects to them uh, and many considerations at play. Uh, we're almost inevitably going to uh, come across a difference of opinion, but uh, yes, my the way I look at it, we should try to go to the most senior scholars available mm -hmm. because there's no need for you know those who don't have the same level of knowledge or level of expertise to engage in that than the senior scholars available. Absolutely agree with yourself. There will be many, many masa'il which are, are already present in the book, and all you're doing essentially is nahal. Yes, exactly. That most people, most of the time, all they're doing is presenting to you what's already been established. Yeah. And as long as that's done from credible, reliable books, and it, it, it represents the the sound opinion of the madhab, or in the Hanafi madhab, we will say that you have the concept of awlad musahahani, two sound opinions, as long as it's one of the sound opinions. Anybody with some good level of proficiency and somebody who is diligent will be able to deliver that, inshallah. But with the, the actual issues uh, of the day, essentially, the controversial, difficult issues, these uh, should really go to the more senior scholars. Uh, those who, uh, who um, check out the website will see that, inshallah. Mm -hmm. The standard issues, uh, I've answered them from the Hanafi perspective, Sheikh Muhammad Jamili's answered them from the Shafi perspective. We also have a Maliki uh, teacher, Sidi Saifuddin. He answers them as well. And with the standard ones, what you'll see is just we have a few Hanbali uh, answers there as well, too, I think. Nice. Uh, uh, you'll just, the, the standard books of the Madhab, and it's just conveyed. Whereas any issue, certainly from my perspective, the Hanafi perspective, any issue that is deemed even somewhat detailed, it requires um, you know, uh, there's a contemporary aspect to it, there'll be a, a scholar or a list of contemporary scholars, senior teachers of mine who would have had a look at my answer um, and found it to be reliable and acceptable. Yeah. It's, uh, this methodology I think is uh, along most I bless you for speaking about it, it's incredibly important for people to understand and get used to it. It's not the case that any sheikh can just simply say anything. And because he's a sheikh, it's okay. Or he has the title mufti because um, in some parts of the Hanafi world, it's yeah. fairly easy to claim the title mufti. It's not particularly difficult, even from recognized institutions. It's not a matter of, you know, you've taught fit for 20 years and now they're yep. you already. You know, it's more so you study a standard program and you study a specialized fit program, and then that's it. You have the title of mufti. So, you know, there are some concerns with titles at times. Yeah. So we have this clear methodology. When, when something is in the books, it's quite clear. Anybody proficient, uh, make it transparent on the page and present it. Any difficulty whatsoever, let's go to the most senior scholars we have available. I, I totally agree. And before I go to the next question, uh, uh, why don't we just do a, a fix the audio real quick. Do, go to the left on the Zoom, on the Zoom channel. Go to hit mic. Go on to the Zoom. Hit mic. No, keep it on. Hit the arrow for mic. No, the mic arrow. Yeah, where it says, uh, sorry, where it says mute right now. Hit that arrow and maybe put it to, to OBS. Yeah, mic to OBS. Is there an option for that to make sure the Sheikh's uh, audio is coming through? We're having some audio problems for some reason. I don't know why. It's very... Should I check it on my end? 
Uh, no, your your audio is coming through to us. It's the first time this happened. Um. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't even know what the issue is, honestly. Do, do, how do we do it all the time, regularly? Just regular? Normal, yeah. Should we close out? Oh, maybe it's that. Yeah, test. No, the speaker. It's the mic okay, that we will. All right. Can we do a test? Testing. All right, Sheikh, could you say something real quick? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Inshallah, we are speaking about the manhaj, essentially, the methodology. Is it coming out on YouTube? So it's going on YouTube, but it's not going to you now. It's really weird. My apologies my apologies Sheikh. we're just fixing this uh the audio real quick sometimes these uh you know all these computer uh apps having to come together at the same time all these apps and you never know what's going on testing Testing. Yeah, Sheikh, can you uh, say something real quick? Maybe let's let's uh, exit out completely, and then invite him back in. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna. You never know. All right, Sheikh, if you can exit out and then come back, yeah. Maybe it has something to do with his mic too. All right, while Omar fixes that up, inshallah, it's really one of those frustrating things when you have no reason, no clue why the uh, this thing stops working. But you got this concept have- here of people speaking on God's behalf. And this is where um, these are called al-muwaqqa'een anillah. A mufti is a muwaqqa'. And that's why there's a book called I'lam al-muwaqqa'een. It's oftentimes pronounced as but it's it's basically the people signing off on God's will when people sign off on God's will they have to have some kind of you don't want to you, you don't want to do these major things you can't do these major things on your own like this which brings up the question of so many fit councils the the muftis on these fit councils would not be considered muftis or they aren't. They are not muftis in any of the four madhabs. Okay. Where is fiqh taught? It's through the madhabs, right? That's where fiqh is. So if you're going to be a mufti, you eventually got to come through some of the madhabs, right? Assalamu alaikum. I apologize. I had to disappear for a moment. All right. We'll t- we're testing it again. Apologies, everyone, for the. Yeah, it was the. So, just for the audience, something was wrong with the Zoom settings. It's a Zoom setting now, huh? The settings and look at. All right, it's perf now. It says according to Read Nissan, it's perf, not just perfect. It's perf. Anyone watching on replay as well? Make sure to clarify. All right, Mild echo. Someone said. Yeah, I'll fix the echo and everything. All right, now I can I can hear him too. All right, let's let's start the whole thing over. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Sheikh Nuruddin al-Lutani from Luton 
we have to make sure how we say Alutani, right? So that we don't stop at Lutz. Uh, from Luton is teaching at Luton. Could you say again the name of the masjid, please? Um, uh, the masjid I teach in most regularly is um, in Banbury in Oxfordshire. Oh, just raise the... Uh, the Bambri Madani Masjid. Now you can fix the speaker. So, put, put it on Samsung. Put on Samsung. Put the speaker on Samsung. Okay. Yeah, that one right They're there. Really? All right, now everyone can hear him, but I can't hear him. Yeah, Subhanallah. Uh, can you, uh, Sheikh Nuruddin, if you can, uh, if he works? Uh, he can't hear us now. No, he can't hear it's, us. It's really weird. What is going on? Oh, maybe it has to do with his mic that he has. I think it's maybe his mic. Sure, can maybe can you use the the laptop mic? Yeah, maybe that's no the problem. I'll unplug this one. Yeah, maybe that's the issue. Because uh Okay, bismillah, is that any better? Yeah. No. Bismillah. Is that any better? Can you hear me now? It's not his mic. There's something with the settings that I can't figure it out. That's really weird. Yeah. Very strange. This has never happened yet. Yeah. He was working before too. I think when Zoom started, like, started doing something. I think it's, so the issue is that uh, Dr. Shadi can hear, but only one, like if the, he hears, then the audience can hear. If the audience hears, he can't hear. So it's something wrong with the settings. So hmm. I can't figure it out. Okay, okay Bismillah. I made a change. Is it any better now? Can you hear me any better? Uh, so the stream can't hear you, but the issue is that the Dr. Shadi cannot hear you. Because we have like a. One second. Unless I. So, uh, uh, what we're gonna have to do is they're gonna ha there's gonna have to be. Uh, I'm going to make the, his volume very loud. So the audio is going to be very, uh, it's not going to be good for the audience. But inshallah, this is the best that we can do right now. Uh, I apologize like, once again. Do you want to try another time to make sure that we, uh, we can still have get it right? Uh, yeah. Chef Nuruddin, you hear us, right? Yeah, because we need to be able to. So, so what we can do is uh, we can still have everyone here, but it's just going to be not, the audio is not going to be great. It's going to be kind of a. Uh, why don't we try it another time where we get it right, inshallah? Yeah, because his sheikh doesn't hear us even. Hello? Yeah. Let's just try it another time. Because we have everyone waiting here. Yeah. All right. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for some reason, um, but we will, inshallah, continue our discussion on this, and we can see uh, what else. What else? Everyone has any questions on this issue? Um, it's so we're going to go back to our regular programming. Unfortunately, we cannot continue with the sheikh today with our technical difficulties, which is very odd because maybe sometimes these uh, they, these sites upgrade, right? Um, or they what is the word you know they have some kind of a an upgrade or something in the middle of the night and you wake up the next morning and nobody could hear anything nobody knows how to use it so let's go back to the issue of fiqh 
When you issue a fatwa like this, you are signing off for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are, saying, you are signing off that this is God's will. When you study fiqh, where are you going to study fiqh? There is no general fiqh. There is no general broad overview that's not, that's not a study. You will study with one of the four madhabs, right or wrong, okay? There is no self-taught philosophy here, and this is not acceptable. You can read all you want, but you need to go through human beings. Number two, if you're going to reach a level of a mujtahid that can give fatwa, you're going to go through the ranks of ijtihad. And the ranks of ijtihad, the highest that will be reached today is mujtahid finnazila, mujtahid an-nawazil, which means you are a mujtahid in new matters within the silo of your madhab. You're not a mujtahid mutlaq. You're not even a mujtahid fin madhab, meaning that you can go in the madhab and bring new opinions from within the usul of the madhab. No, you're not even that. Mujtahid mutlaq means over all four schools. Mujtahid over all four schools. Like uh, outside the four schools. Essentially, you're founding your own school. So you're not that. You're not, there is no mujtahid in the madhab. And there is no mujtahid. Uh, but there is mujtahid in the nazir. It means you utilize the opinions within the madhab as anal sources of analogy, as the base of the analogy. And then based upon what the scholars said within your method about that issue, you mimic the ruling. That's what mujtahid fin nazila means. Okay. Why aren't there mujtahid mutlaqs anymore? Could there be? Yes, in theory there could be. But the ulama have found no need for it. Why? Because when Imam Asyuti came up and he was qualified as a mujtahid mutlaq and he began to speak that he can establish his own madhab the ulama said no practically speaking the ummah doesn't need a fifth one right four is just the right number and it's satisfying everything here and he and he so he left it off and he said it wouldn't have mattered anyway because the usul that he chose all the rulings would have become shafi in their nature anyway like very close to the shafi school okay because he was very heavy in, the, in, in, in hadith. And he was an expert in hadith. Imam Siyuti. So practically it's not needed. All right. Practically it's impossible as well. Physically it's actually impossible. Because the amount of knowledge that now exists. The amount of furuah that you would need to know. So forget Mujtahid Mutlaq. But we do need fatwas. The fatwas will come from within the silo of the four madhabs. Okay. So when I look at most of the fit council uh, members, I ask the question, like, which medhab recognizes you? Am I right or wrong to ask that? Because where are you coming from? Where are you coming out of? And, and to be honest with you, the fit councils, when I look at them, it seems like the first group of people to call out a fit council becomes the fit council. And they give fit and their authority comes from being the first, right? So that's a problem that I, f I find with these fiqh councils. If you look at the body of tulab ilm in fiqh, very few of them 
are very few. Forget the 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 students, the teachers, the main Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, and Hanbali teachers in the world. The fiqh councils that are out there in the world, in these various continents and countries, they tend to have nothing to do with that world of those traditional teachers. Like, wouldn't you naturally be rooted? In those teachings, like there's got to be some correlation. So it's a very strange thing that um, um, now it's a very strange thing. These fit councils of England and America and, and Europe and America, because the Europeans have their own fit council. So because you got to come from somewhere, you got to come out of somewhere. And let's say you come out of somewhere, you're recognized, you are a known. It's not just about being known. It's about being trained. You got known entities. Their trust, their intention is trusted. Their motivation is trusted, or their motive, I should say, is is honorable. And we can know that because the person's lived 30, 40 years in the world of Dawah, in the world of Deen, and they're we we trust them. Their intention, their their financial dealings, their political dealings, and the way they live their personal life is sort of known. And accepted by the people. But that's not what it is. It's about training. Okay. And and if you are trained, then you should have people who trained you to tell the world that you're trained. And it's not going to be that they just tell the world. We're going to see you with them. Okay. You're going to be with them. And no, nobody could fake it in Syria, for example. Damascus is not a huge city. The shiuch in Damascus, let's say Damascus as an example, they're known. You can't fake it in these places. Everyone knows everybody. All the students know all the students. All the, and the scholars know the advanced students. You don't just emerge out of nothing, right? You're going to come out of somewhere and you're going to be somebody who is trusted and his, it's not just trust again, it's competence. We've seen your work. So that's the commentary that I had about fatwa and and so unfortunately there it is possible you got to be very careful to really just completely destroy all your credibility if you don't if you don't follow this and you don't tread carefully and speaking out of turn can end up making a massive blunder okay all right all right, let's move to the next segment. We talked about the fatwa. We're now down to three segments since we, we really apologize to the sheikh and to all of our viewers that the tech didn't work today. Uh, but we'll make it happen later on. It's not a big deal. Uh, we'll have the sheikh on again. Uh, but let's read now regarding the Prophet's knowledge, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We were saying, reading about the Prophet's knowledge of the unseen a few weeks ago. We continue with that today. Reading from the Shifa of Qadi Ayyad. I wish I had the Arabic, but I'm reading from the English. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ was told, or told, sorry, he told, about the appearance of a group that will speak against okay, the decree of Allah, meaning the Qadariyah, the people who say that they do not believe in Qadr. Okay? And they say, Al-A'malu musta'nafa. 
that man himself is the creator of his own actions and has the power to do them. There are three categories in Aqidah regarding the subject matter of power and actions. The first is that of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah that says, Khalaqakum wa ma'tamalun. Allah is the creator of your actions. And re- merely we have the ability to intend them. And we intend them with our own, by our own volition, by Allah's will. Allah has willed that we choose things on our own. Okay. You do not have your own willpower except that Allah willed that you have your own willpower. So you're not, you have your own willpower, not independent of Allah. This is what Abu Lahab said. Abu Lahab said, I can act if I want to. I believe if I want to. Allah, Allah says, And the third very important verse is, So why are we able to be punished or rewarded? rewarded? Is because we do intend. Okay? So that's the me. So these are the three most important verses on this subject matter. He created you and what you do. The second group are those who say we can act and we have power because Allah gave it to us. And we are the creator of our actions because Allah allowed it. And we say this this group is from not from Ahl Sunnah anymore. You've contradicted an explicit verse of Quran. You only earn what you intended. Not you do not have power on your power because Allah gave you power. You have no power at all to create actions. The third group is outside of Islam completely. Okay. And that is the one who says that anything has its own independent power, independent of Allah. Has its own power independent of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That group is out of is out of Islam completely. Okay. So as Shifa here of Qadi Ayyad we're reading from, he says that the messenger told about the the, the appearance of the Qadariya and the Rawafid. And he says the proof of that is in a hadith. Okay, let's see which hadith this is. Go to page 188 here we are. No, the footnote here is not correct. Oh, and he said that the last of this community would curse the first of it. The last of this community would curse the early Muslims. Okay. The Ansar would diminish until they become like the salt and food. In other words, the number of Muslims would increase so much that the Ansar, the percentage of Muslims that are Ansar would decrease and decrease and decrease and decrease. Until they're like the salt in the food. Their position would continue to dissipate until not a group of them remained. Okay. He said they would meet with the with despotism after him. The Ansar, remember, they are the bulk of the Ummah. 
in the time of the Prophet He told about the Khawarij, describing them down to the malformed one among them. And he said their mark would be that they shaved their heads and they wear very short clothes and they're very worshipful. Okay, don't be fooled by excessive religion and don't be fooled by piety of literalism. Now, listen to this and write this down and, and, and pay very close attention to this. Things are known by observation, sensory perception, reason, or transmission. You, Ahl-Sunnah and Islam puts this in perfect order for us. Science, logic, and transmitted knowledge. For us, it's revelation. Okay. Language is also transmitted. History is also transmitted. The, there is a group of people who elevate one excessively above the others. Okay? And the, when they do that f- with observation and sense perception, those are, that is scientism. Okay? The philosophy of scientism elevates observable empirical data excessively over logic and over transmitted sources of knowledge. Philosophers would then elevate reason far above, imbalanced, far above observation, scientific knowledge, scientific facts, and transmitted knowledge. Okay? So there, so the tabai'iyin, the naturalists, or today's evolutionists and Darwinists, those who are advocates of scientism, are the first category. Second category are the philosophers who it's reason alone, logic alone that by which we arrive at anything. And they pretty much dismiss scientific facts or transmitted knowledge. The third group elevates transmitted knowledge excessively above logic and scientific facts and observations. And those are the literalists within religions. And they're extremely dangerous. They're one of the greatest causes of people leaving religion are the literalists because human beings love reason. They love when the, the fits like things fit like a puzzle piece. They, they abhor internal contradictions. The human fitra abhors internal contradictions. And you cannot tell me that to, to believe something. And there's another source of credible information and these two things are at odds with one another, and you just say, live with it. This is exactly why people left Catholicism, Christianity in general. It's why they left Judaism. It's why the, in Islam, the literalists are one of the most dangerous. This group, when they spread, and they had spread in the past couple decades and maybe close to a century, far and wide, no use of uh, uh, at all in any capacity okay or recognition of observable facts in the world so Razi says I think it's Razi or who was it a Sanusi one of, one of the most academy but we all agree on this is that there is no way for any of these three to truly contradict one another they're all Barahin they're all proofs from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of course, the Qur'an is the highest level of a proof. The hadith, as-sahih, okay, particularly that which is mutawatir and mustafil, is the next highest level of a proof. We now have observation that is a proof. 
scientific observation, when it is accurate and correct, is a proof. But when I say proof, it means it's a source of certainty. It's a source of knowledge. Yufidul ilm. Okay? This phone right here is red. Okay? This book right here is green. These are facts. And then reason. Logic, which really only has two essential, essential laws. Okay? Is A, that things are themselves. In other words, I like to put it differently. I like to put it, everything must be crisply defined. Okay? And whenever that thing shows up, it's that definition. Okay? And then secondly, no statement, no document should internally contradict itself. If I'm talking right here, and it sounds like I make a contradiction, either there it is a contradiction, then that person is a sefi, he's a fool, or there is actually no contradiction, and you just misunderstood. Okay. I was reading up about a person, a very popular type of uh, self-help type of person, who claims it's Christianity, and the person says. It's not Christianity because they never talk about Jesus. Well, never talking about Jesus does not make it antithetical to Christianity, right? So just because you perceived a contradiction doesn't make it a contradiction. So it has to actually be a substantive contradiction. These three sources, Wallahi, this is Kalam 101. Sama, hearing, transmitted knowledge. So Allah brings by transmitted knowledge. Language, history, Religion, journalism, okay? Quran and hadith, all of these are transmitted. This is transmitted knowledge. Yourself, even. How do you know you're your mom and dad's kid? Some kids don't look like their parents at all. It's transmitted knowledge that this woman gave birth to you. Five, 10, 15 people were there, okay? On the weekend in which you were born. That's transmitted knowledge. So transmitted knowledge in the sema. Well, basar, observable knowledge, which means all the sense perception from taste, smell, touch, sight, okay? Scientific facts, not theories, the fact of it. The theory is the story behind it, behind the why, okay? But the fact we all recognize is truth, is a source of certainty, okay? A bone was found. A set of bones were found. That's the fact. Then someone comes with a fanciful theory, says... It's the Tegosaurus or whatever, okay? And this was a beast that lived and fed off of this, that, and the other, and we're going to fill in the blanks. I always got disappointed, and my whole concept of, of, of these museums was shattered when I asked one time at a museum, why is it that some of the skeleton is cream and some is white? And they said the white is what was discovered. Of course, it's not the real bone it's a mimic of the bone right a plaster version but the white represents the bone that was discovered and the cream represents what the what the theorist had to create to make an image right like filling in the blanks and i'm like 90 percent of the thing is cream you found two bones and then you put an animal together so the theory is, it's the purpose of science is to come up with a story. The purpose, that's the purpose. So I'm not blaming the concept of theorizing. 
You can't just say, here, we got a bunch of bones. You got to use your brain. Well, what, what were those brains doing? What were those bones doing? Why were they there? Et cetera, et cetera. And come up with a theory. But your theory needs to be like a lot of evidence and then a little bit of theorizing. Not a little bit of evidence and then making up a long story after that. Okay. Secondly, a theory stands as a valid theory as long as no facts disprove it. Okay. So this is the shape of the dinosaur, in my opinion, until we find a full skeleton of that same kind uh, with those bones, but the full skeleton. Now we know that that theory is invalid now, right? It's going to look like this. So for a Muslim, we do not restrict transmission, observation, and uh, reason. All of them are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the, the truth will never be self-contradictory. Okay. So that's why there is no such thing as a Muslim evolutionist. Okay. If we're talking about evolution. Okay. And that's the, that's the importance of learning how to use your brain, how to assess if an observation is a fact or a theory. And I cannot tell you how many guys I sit with, educated, IT, medical field, tech. I sit with them and they constantly, they consistently confuse fact and theory, right? And they say, well, we have proof that there's Neanderthal mans and this guy, this kind of man and that kind of man. And I'm like, are you actually serious right now? Right? You're actually conf you taking the conclusion of a theorist, a theorist, and you're conflating that with facts? The fact in Islam will be weighed alongside of transmitted evidence, the Quran and the Mutawatir Hadith. And some of some ulama will add also the Sahih Hadith too. Okay. All ahad, a hadith. And you have to, the theory must fit. Otherwise, you're saying the Prophet is not true and the Quran is not true. So I said, Are you actually, you actually don't know that when scientists are speaking, especially what gets published in Newsweek or New York Times or whatever, or it gets into the History Channel, it's the, 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 the fact is maybe four, five, six percent, and the rest is a huge tale. And why? There's nothing to lose for them. There's nothing to lose in sowing this tall tale. No one is getting hurt by the theory that there's Neanderthal man and all these other types of men and hominid this and hominid that, right? Just to use that as an example. What do they have to lose? There's no action upon it. No one's going to be getting surgery based on this knowledge. No one's going to be building a bridge based on this knowledge. No one, no one can get hurt from this, Right? So it's okay for them to have 2% pieces of information, 98% they fill in in the gaps. One of these guys goes, when he put out the measure of what a human being would have looked like, and his theory is that what he did was he looked at the growth of the bone that he saw over a small period of time, and then like a computer algorithm or something, he just stretched it out over a billion years. That's not how life works, right? But again, why are they able to do that in those fields that have to do with the past? Because no one's going to get hurt. You come into the present, 
and where people are are, are gonna are, are actually gonna use a product or suffer if it goes bad and you need far more certainty than this all right so this is something to keep in mind when you're dealing with all this stuff All right. So that's where when we talk about the Kharijites, the Kharijites are the literalists. They elevate the transmitted knowledge, which we elevate too, but they refuse to recognize when their understanding of a text or when a solitary text or even a Quranic text, there, when it, there seems to be that the outward meaning of it provides an internal contradiction. Let me give you an uh, example from a hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, when the sun sets, it prostrates under the throne of Allah and takes permission to rise again. So let's talk about two things here then. Number one, when the sun sets, is it moving? We now know that it's not moving, right? Let's say hypothetically it's moving. So it sets then it prostrates under the throne of Allah. So the throne of Allah is underneath us? Impossible. Is the throne of Allah underneath us? It's impossible, right? That the throne of Allah is underneath us because that's what the wording of it means. So let's take a second point. Prostrates. How does an orb prostrate? Where is the top of an orb? Where's the bottom of an orb? Prostration is the top goes down. That's what prostration means. Okay? So we take it, that is something that we are allowed to say is uh, is definitely from a, is a is in a sense of mutashabih because it's unknown what it means, and the ulama say what we can say from this is that it's an expression that the sun is in complete submission to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Even if you say the orb has its own version of sajda, fine, but we can't say the throne of Allah is under the earth. Okay, and we clearly have eyes on the sun now, and the sun is not going up to the throne of Allah and coming down. So we, firstly, we don't need to interpret it. But we can say that where the sun is, what we have knowledge of, what we have observed with our own two eyes, it can be considered in the tafsir of such an ayah. Right? But the problem with khawarij, and this exists in the Catholic religion and in the Jewish religion, probably even worse, and every child that comes out of the Catholic religion and you know, becomes a Muslim, they say, you know, I asked the, the nun in school, is Jesus, is he God or son of God? Is he, who did he worship? And the nun says, stop asking these questions. That's what literalism is. It's where you refuse to re respect the creation of Allah, the proofs he gave you of observable and rational knowledge. And you just roughshod over them. This human fitr will never accept that. The human fitr will never accept this. You, it's self-defeating. You're ruining yourself. You're ruining your own religion when you do this. And if you look at the demise of every religion, it's almost always preceded by the spread of literalists. So we take the Quran literally. We take it literally. But we have a concept of mutashabihat. And the ulama have dealt with this. We're not dealing with it. The ulama have dealt with it. The mutashabih, Allah tells us it's mutashabih. It's like the outward meaning, that can't be this. It can't be this. Because it contradicts other verses in the Quran that are more widespread, right? So then the ulama have said either re just simply reject the outward 
meaning of it that is contradictory to other parts of the book and leave it at that, right? And may and know that it does have a meaning, but not the outward meaning. That's the least that we, then we call that tenzih. Okay. And that is the position of tafweed. And ta'wil is tenzih ma'at tafsir. It's tenzih to reject sarf al-ma'na an dahirihi. These three words, sarf al-ma'na an dahirihi, four words. Okay. Sarf al-ma'na an dahirihi. And then relying upon the ta'wilat, the interpretations of the salaf. The hanabila make interpretation of the general verse. This is on the my interview with Sheikh Yusuf Sadiq, Yusuf bin Sadiq. And the Asha'ira and the Maturidiyah will do ta'wil of that word. They're not interpreting from themselves, they're using the Arabic language. In any event, we're not getting into that today, but that was the, that is the reason why literalism leads astray. And how we are, we do take the word of Allah literally, but when it seems to have an internal contradiction, it must be handled. And Allah told us that's what happened. They're mutashabihat. He told us this. So it's not, not a mystery. And he said, those, some people, they have crookedness in their hearts. Their hearts are not, uh, they, they don't handle the internal contradiction and they pass that on to the next generation and the next generation inherits a cognitive dissonance as a result. And eventually they leave Islam. The Prophet ﷺ told us that shepherds would become the leaders of the people and the naked barefoot ones would vie in building high buildings and mothers would give birth to their mistresses. So what this means is that the first half of this points to a people who Allah, the mes- Allah's Messenger called naked and barefooted ones, which refers to lack of civilization, lack of clothing, lack of wealth, lack of anything that leaders are expected to have, lack of history, like a, histor- a history of governance, a history of culture, a history of scholarship, a history of positive things that people would look up to, yet they will become the leaders. They will become so rich, they will compete in how high they can build buildings. Mothers would give birth to their mistresses. This is attributed sometimes in some cases where uh, a woman of very low status marries into uh, a ruler of sorts. And hence, the daughter is of higher status than the mother. And Allah knows best. He said that the Quraysh and their confederates would not conquer him, but that he would conquer them. That was a prophecy that happened in his time. Okay. The prophecies are divided into three categories. The f- prophecy that was spoken and occurred before it was written down. So by the time the Hadith scholars wrote it down in books that we could look at with our own two eyes, it had already happened. That was a prophecy for the Sahaba and for the first generation. That doesn't benefit us in the sense, of course it benefits us, but it doesn't benefit the skeptic in the sense that the skeptic could simply say, obviously, they said it, he said it, and they said it happened before they wrote it down. So they, it's easy to say that you can make that up, right? 
like if I say to somebody here, I, I, I foretold, right, that Biden would defeat Trump. Oh, really? Where did you foretell it? It's in my book. When did you write the book? After the Biden election. Oh, this doesn't count, right? It doesn't count. So does it benefit us? Yes, because we believe the Muhaddithin. But does it benefit the skeptic? No, because he could easily say, you know, you wrote it afterwards. What benefits the, the skeptic that we present to someone of weak faith or of no faith is the prophecy that was written down and, and the event happened after we have manuscript proof that it was written down. So it was in Bukhari or Muslim or Tirmidhi or Abu Dawood or Ibn Majr or Muslim Imam Ahmad or Tawarani. And we have those books in manuscript form. Centuries before the event happened, that is the one that is the proof. Okay? And that's what should be presented to people. The third category of prophetic, uh, 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 of, of prophecies, is that prophecy which has yet to happen. And those two should be preached to the people. Why? Because we all hear that prophecy, but we haven't seen how it happens yet. Let me give you one. We know the Prophet ﷺ said, a man's sandal strap and his whip will inform him of what he does, and that metal will speak. And we constantly now are talking to objects. We're talking to our phone, constantly talking to our phone. We're constantly go walk into the car, Siri, get me this. Walk at home, Alexa, get me that. Find me this piece of information, find me that. Play me this playlist, play that playlist. We are constantly, human beings are constantly talking to inanimate objects now. So we get that. But there's another part of this prophecy that we don't see. The Prophet said animals will speak. We don't have that. But we have to say it because we will have it someday. Okay? It will happen someday that what happens in the brains of an animal will get translated through a software and then maybe a collar or something will speak of the animal's desire. This is not far off at all. If you, if you put nodes on an animal's head, okay? And a node will, uh, is, will, will uh, be monitoring the area of hunger, let's say, for example. It's not so hard. That goes off. It translates through a software, and the animal says, I'm hungry. Where is an animal about to go to the bathroom? It detects that, translates through a software, I'm about to go to the bathroom. So if you have a dog, that's useful for you, Okay. Um, the dog shouts out, I'm about to go to the bathroom. All right, let's take him outside. Okay. This is not that hard. And it's a matter of, let's see when they do it. Not if, but when, because when the prophet speaks, we hold it to be true. And this is why Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal said, be very careful about transmitting the very weak types of prophecies. Because one thing that cannot happen for any said prophet, and we know will not happen for our prophet, وسلم, is the prophecy that goes the opposite. Not the prophecy that hasn't happened yet. The prophecy that goes the opposite direction. Like Nostradamus, when he prophesied that in 300 years, there would be extreme drought and the population of Europe will go down. He gave us a mathematical prophecy. And what happened? He was proven the exact opposite. He was proven wrong. The population went up. He gave us an objective measure. 
the population. And what happened? Modernity was developed. Farming methods improved. And the population went through the roof. So you got the first one. That is the first prophecy in his book. It's in the introduction. Okay. Nostradamus is Mikael de Notre Dame. That's what Nostradamus is, right? Mike from Notre Dame. That's who he is. And he's, of course, someone who was doing a lot of guessing. And he was into the occult. And was wrong, right? So once you have one prophecy that's wrong, you're out. All right? The whole person is discounted. Let me talk about something else. This is a little bit off of the topic of the Prophet wasallam. But what do we say about somebody who claims an unseen um, experience, a spiritual experience, and it's like a repeated experience, yet seems to us 100% genuine? Okay. How do we explain this in Islam? And they're saying things that are uh, contrary to the Sharia. Like, for example, they seem 100% genuine and they say that they have spiritual experiences and they, their conclusion is like, for example, universality of all religions. It doesn't matter the theology. Just all come together and be, be good, right? And God loves all the religions, Christianity, Hinduism, whatever it is, just pray to God. What do we do with such a person? First of all, you have to understand that you don't have to have a full understanding of what's happening with that person. The first, first knowledge that we must have is we must know the place in our epistemology of that person. And spiritual experiences do not inform our doctrine or our law, period, no matter who it is. Even if it's Sheikh Shiuch and Mufti of the Ottoman Empire, his mukashafa will not inform our aqidah nor our sharia. Simple as that, right? Let alone someone outside of Islam. No matter how amazing their speeches are, no matter how amazing their spiritual experiences are, no matter how uplifting they seem to be, they will never inform our aqidah or our sharia. We have a prophet who delivered to us a book. That's in clear Arabic tongue. And what has come down from that, that's our belief. Okay. No human being's spiritual experience will a spiritual experience, that's your experience. I wasn't there to see you. I'm not there to see to check if it was true or not. So it's subjective. The subjective doesn't override the explicit, the objective, the absolute, okay, which is the Quran. And the, and the sunnah overall, the general sunnah of the Prophet Secondly, all right, fine. Well, I know the ruling, but explain to me what's going on. How do they, they seem so genuine? And I am speaking about a specific individual, but I'm not going to mention their name. They seem so genuine, so uplifting, but they end up saying, it's so honest, but they end up bringing us doctrines that contradict Islam. I say, listen, I don't I I have to say that they are lying from the with the definition of the Arabic definition that what the untruth are being spoken. When we say kadhab in Arabic, it does not mean they're maliciously and intentionally twisting the truth. 
it means that they are uh, saying something untrue, right? If I sit here and I tell you there are only two cars in the parking lot, that's I could be lying. That doesn't mean I'm trying to mislead you. That doesn't mean I have no regard for the truth. That simply means I made a mistake. I could have been, I could have not seen the third car. I could have not known the third car came. So technically I'm innocent. By moral standards, I'm innocent. But by objective standards, I'm inaccurate. And that's what we call a lie. So we would have to say they're a liar in that respect. In the respect of the truth, they're, they're, t- they're telling mistruths. Okay. Now, are they delusional? Are they fabricating? Are they frauds, essentially? Like total liars. Total liars, you usually sort of know them in their personal life. When you make millions and millions and millions of dollars and you don't really spend them on yourself and you give them away in charity, it makes you sort of think he's not exactly a fraud because frauds always have a motive, right? And usually it's a financial motive. So may not be able to say he's a fraud. Can we say they're delusional? If they're delusional, wouldn't they be delusional in other facets of life too? Can a person be delusional in one facet of life, but very competent in other facets of life? So that's usually how a delusional person, it manifests in everything. In their finances, they're delusional. In their family relationship, they're delusional. Not just delusional in one sphere. Like I think, for example, Donald Trump could pass the test as delusional and a fraud, but it does strike everything in his business life, in his family life, in his political life. Everything about the guy is lies. He's just, he's delusional in that sense. He's un, uh, he's not founded in truth anymore. He doesn't have any regard to the truth. Okay? He has regard to what he wants to be true. And that benefits him a lot. And that he does attain what he wants to because he just puts his puts it in his mind and in other people's mind that this is how it is. The election was a fraud. The election was a fraud. So repeat it hundreds upon thousands of times. It was a fraud. It was stolen. It was a fraud. It was stolen. Then it enters the hearts of the people who love him. And then they start finding, because they believe it, now they start seeing little pieces of evidence that it was a fraud. Now it grows and it becomes a, a, a whole viewpoint of life. Right, but he's someone who passes those tests. Delusion means someone who who states the world is a way that it clearly is not. That's one thing, and there are some times where delusion—it's not called delusion; it's just like a positive belief. And if you look at everyone, anyone successful, they're going to tell you that uh, they had to believe a conclusion to the situation that was not very apparent right now. Like all the people who succeed in life, they have to keep their mind that everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be good, even though it doesn't seem to be. I wouldn't call that delusion. I would call that the correct use of hope. Okay. But he took it so far that he applies it to the actual realities in front of him. So he's someone who you can clearly say is delusional. And then he's a fraud, right? He lies to everybody financially steals from everybody he's, he's a snake oil salesman so but the person i'm talking about does not have either of these two qualities so now it seems delusional it doesn't seem to be a fraud so what is it okay i don't have to have an answer that's the thing i don't know and i have to i don't have to have an answer right 
So it's very important for us to understand that we don't always have to have an answer for everything. We just have to know what is obligatory, what we do, the answer we have to have, how does it affect my, me and my dean? Uh, I remember back in 2002, Sayyid Hossein Nasr was, was uh, the, t- the professor at GW that I took my master's with, and he was very impressed, extremely impressed with yogis. And the yogi, he said, in front of my own two eyes, buried himself. Okay, they buried him in, in an area that where uh, he had a little bit of a casket where he could breathe at least, and then they buried him. Okay, but he had a little bit of a casket enough to to have oxygen there, and he said, "Before my own two eyes, the man spent um, forty days buried, no food, no water." And he said, we went back, we kept watch on the grave area, spent the time there in India, came out, they dug him up, and he walked right off. Okay. So he's saying, basically this to him was that there's truth in Hinduism. Right. So the answer to that, first of all, I don't actually have to know how he did it. To know that it doesn't indicate truth in Hinduism. Because truth is not determined by tricks and miracles, these kinds of tricks. Truth is claimed by a prophet who comes recognizing the previous religions. In other words, the tawheed of other prophets. That's Remember that. The oath that the prophets took, He affirms the tawheed of the ones before you. Okay? And then he brings you another book from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he claims to be a prophet. So that is where my religion is based upon. The book and the sunnah. Not the tricks and supposed miracles of people who come after the prophet because he's khatim and nabiyin. If the prophet was not khatim and nabiyin, then we would say, oh, okay, there's a new prophet here. Does he confirm the previous religions? Previous prophets? Previous tawheed that we know? And then did he perform a miracle that shows he's a prophet, a prophecy of some sort? So there's multiple things, not just a trick. But now anyway, let me tell you, we, we can theorize now about these tricks. And mostly the theory is going to go back to support from jinn. So there is a truth, but it's a dark truth. Yes, there is a truth to these guys. These guys are not just, they're not digging a tunnel. There are no physical tricks here. There are no physical tricks like a, the magicians that do, you know, they have shows and then they have amazing tricks. It's a trick. It's a sleight of hand trick, right? It's not a sleight of hand trick. These yogis are not performing sleight of hand tricks. So we know that. But spirituality is not all light. There is spirituality of darkness. And that is the world of jinns. So that's the easy theory. Notice, I'm saying it's a theory because we, we don't really see these things. We don't know for sure. But could it possibly be support from jinn? Most likely it's going to be that. Okay, support from jinns. All right.
Let's now turn to everyone's comments and questions because I think this stuff is really interesting for people. Okay. This stuff is really interesting, and I see, and I think a lot of people would want to talk about it. All right, so let's put our bookmark here, and let us now turn to your comments and questions. We're not on Instagram today. If you know anyone who was going on Instagram, let them know, because we are no longer on. Today we'll be on Instagram. Um, All right, let's hear it. Bismillah, go ahead. questions yet Transmission, it was one, it could be like one companion passed it on, or one tabi took it from that companion, and then it spread far and wide. So it has the effect later on, it appears as mutawatir because it's everywhere, but it started from one. Okay, that's the meaning of mustafid. The, the shahada is valid in any language provided that the meaning is that there is none worthy of worship but Allah and that Muhammad is his messenger mustafid by the way ends with a letter dad mustafid mustafid mim sin ta fa ya dad mustafid yani afad fad like it's like fad is a flood it became like a flood it wasn't a flood originally, but it became like like what's an example of the of a mustafid hadith? How about mm-hmm. Now the Prophet did say it on the mimbar, like he gave it as a khutbah. So a, a lot of Sahaba heard it, but in terms of transmission, what we all have is Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab to one tabi to one tabi to one tabi tabi tabi, and then that tabi tabi. Spread it far and wide. No, actually, he's a tabe. Sayyidina Omar, the chain is one, Sayyidina Omar, and then it's two or three tabe'in. And then it spreads far and wide. To the point that it's like the first thing that anyone learns. Okay. Now let's go back to the shahada. A couple rules you need to know about the shahada. It can never be delayed. Oh, this thing, I don't accept it anymore. Calls me on Wednesday. Hey, I got a friend. Can I bring him to take the Shahada on Friday? Yes, you can, but give him the Shahada now. Oh, but he wants to do it in front of everybody and have a... We will do that for him, right? But give him the Shahada right now on the phone. You give it to him. You, Who can give the Shahada? Anybody. You can give yourself the Shahada. I'm a convert watching. I don't know how to become Muslim. You say, oh, Allah, you're my witness. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Discussion over here. You're now a mu'min and a Muslim... You just now need to make the community know about it for practicalities purposes. So that when we see you on the street, if you die, we know what to do with you. 
if you want to get married, we know that you're a Muslim. If you slaughter something, then we, we can eat it, right? So we need to know, the community needs to know that you're a Muslim. So we can give you your dues. You can take zakah, okay? Things like that. We know how to greet you with all that practicality stuff. So the, But the shahada can be given by oneself. And I can't tell you how many people I met. Well, I could probably can. It was probably three, four people who became Muslim not knowing there is a shahada to be uttered. And so they never actually said, now I'm going to become a Muslim. La ilaha illallah Rasulullah. They didn't know that because they became Muslim through videos and books. So what they did is in their heart, they said, I'm a Muslim now, right? And they started making wudu and praying. That's it. So they say, was I Muslim the whole time? Yes, you were Muslim the whole time. Because in the prayer, aren't you going to say, so they've said the shahada many, many times. But they didn't realize that there is a moment where you could just say the shahada and boom, now you're a Muslim. Anyway, we gave them shahada anyway. They've been already making wudu, praying and fasting for years. Not having known, because not all converts are these gung-ho people, right? Sometimes you have somebody who has like three kids, single mom converts to islam or i know another guy uh went through a phase watched youtube videos read some pamphlets became muslim went on in with his life became a, like a uh, i don't know physical therapist or something lived an average life but they never desired any more than just to know what to have a religion right that's it so he never went out and studied, never traveled to the different masjid. You know when a convert comes and then all of a sudden, I got to go to every masjid, read every book, see every speaker, etc. Know about everything. Not everyone's like that. Have there been medhebs that died out in the past? Yes, seven in particular that we can name. Ibn Jarir al-Tabari had a medhab. Abu Dawood's uh, no, sorry, Dawood uh, Al-Zahiri had a madhab. Al-Awza'i had a madhab. Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad had a madhab. Sufyan al thawri had a madhab. That's five, right? There's two more. Who are the two others? No, those are they. Ne they never were at Sunnah in the first place. Who were the two others? Um, there were two others that had madhab, madhabs meaning they had a methodology and people followed them. Jafri school, like it's a life cycle, right? But like when it started out, like it's a valid school, right? I don't think so. Allah, I don't think so. No. Not that I've read in the history. Yeah. He wasn't Imam of Ahl Sunnah, but he didn't. If in our record in history, he didn't establish a, a methodology of fiqh to be followed. Yeah, like if if it would ever existed, it would be in the books of uh, Qadir Ayyad, uh, because he documented all that, all of what happened in Medina at the time of the Imam uh, Malik. Okay, Senatarik for really long surahs. How many verses should we read for each rakah of salah for Fajr? Now, let me break it this way. The length, when we talk about length, duha to nas is considered short. Abasa to duha is considered medium. Hujurat to abasa is considered long. So that's the general length. 
So I would put it as Doha Tines, you could say half a page. Doha Ta'abasa, close to a page. Abasa to Hujarat, we could say, what, one to four pages, right? More than one page, up to four. So for Fajr, you should recite long surahs. Dhuhr, long surahs. Asr, medium-length surahs. Maghrib, short surahs. Aisha, medium-length surahs. Now, you're not limited to those surahs. We're just giving an example of length. So short is half a page and under. Medium is half a page to one page. And long is one page onwards, uh, up to four pages. And a person should not lead in salah more than, longer than what's in between Abasa to Hujurat. Okay. The hadith, let none of you pray asr except after reaching the Bani Quraidah, perfectly illustrates literal versus deeper meaning. That's correct. Is it possible that the Prophet meant Miss Asr? Some of the Sahaba said it's impossible that the Prophet meant Miss Asr, right? The Prophet, a pro- Messenger of Allah, will never inform people to Miss Asr, right? And yet, some Sahaba said, no, we're going to go by the letter of what the Prophet said. And the Prophet went and he, he accepted both, right? He did accept both. Does maqam interfere with tajweed? Maqam is not something that you ever have to learn. You know the maqamats, nahawand, and I never learned that, and my teachers actually didn't, my, the, the Moroccan teachers that I had didn't really like those things. The Arabs on the East, they love those things. But you should learn tajweed first before you ever learn maqamats. Maqamat has nothing to do with the Quran per se. It has to, and, and the Madakis tend to prohibit this. Uh, maqamat has to do with melodies and the the Madakiya dislike these use of melody in the in the adhan let alone uh, the tilawat al-Quran some of the Syrians don't like it like uh, especially with like sort of Fatiha when uh, mm-hmm. like you know how like yeah. the Egyptian reciters yep. go up and down yep. but they would say that's like it's a different letter each time you you're up. kidding subhanAllah so that's why they yeah, they don't like that. Rechanging the tone. Mm-hmm. Any draw for managing parents' frustrations and or provision needs? It's a general advice, that's all. Of try to pour on more honey. Someone's upset. Try to take attention from the upsetness or find the source of the upsetness. Try to pour on more honey. People, when they're happy, they find less reason to be upset. When they're pleased with you, when they're when you're nice to them, they they don't want to be upset with you, so they'll make excuses for you. Um, financial needs, you need to support them. The son needs to support them first. If not, then the son-in-law. Chocolate Walla, question: My father is in the last stage of a neurological disorder. He's in pain. Would it be a sin if we stop treating him with antibiotics since there is no cure? And just do pain medications. Yes, it is not sinful. It is permissible for you to do that. Minhaj, am I allowed to pray behind my father who makes big mistakes in the Fatah since he's not an Arab? Oh, what are the parameters of those mistakes? I think they said if it no longer sounds like Quran or 
not letters, because there are lisps, and lisps is allowed. You can lead the prayer with a lisp. But if it no longer sounds like the Qur'an, then we can't pray behind them. Okay. How do we explain narrations? Says Muhammad Shak, like Muawiyah asking, what prevents you from cursing Ali to the companions? We, the explanation from for those, firstly, I don't remember uh, such a hadith. I'm not, uh, I do know that the cursing of Ali did happen in the time of uh, Muawiyah, if I'm not mistaken. It did happen. And I can tell you that in general, the way that the ulama would uh, answer that is that it was not out of cursing him as a heretic or an innovator or an impious Muslim, but rather as somebody who, um, as a method to make the people stay away from him. And it's an error. Now, cursing is less than fighting physically. And Sahaba fought physically. And we can accept that as a political dispute amongst them over the over matters of this world, not over matters of deen. So we would explain it in light of that. We already understand that they fought. Cursing is less than that. Okay? It's less than that. It's like hitting someone with your mouth, with your words. But I would want to go and look at actually what some of the Ottoman have said about it as well. Okay. When you say they had a madhab, they had their own madhabs, not from the four. Correct. Lana is asking about these imams that I say that Awza'i, Sufyan al yes, they had their own methodologies. There was Mujtahid Mutlaq, Layth ibn Sa'ad, Ibn Jarir al Tabari, Dawood al Zahiri. And there's two more. Can you look up the, the, the 11 madhabs? Because there were 11 at some point, but they died out. They didn't have enough students. One brother saying here that Ishaq ibn Rahawi had a madhab. What about shahada for kids? Kids do not need to take the shahada. Children, when they enter into Islam, they just start praying and fasting. They do not need to take the shahada to enter Islam. They could if they want to, but... I know a person who reverted when they were 16 years old. Flabbergasted to learn that when he went to Imam, he told him, to think clearly for four to three oh my gosh that is haram for him to do that is haram to him to do for the imam to do that that is not right okay because it's Allah's haq the shahada is not yours it's not for you it's not for me it's not for the person who does it it is the haq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be believed in Noor says Islam is not a club that you're joining it's God's rights Noor says, when I first read the Qur'an and Sirah and pondered over it, I never actually said the Shahada, but one day I asked myself, why are you doing this daily? And my heart literally replies, because you're a Muslim. That's it. And eventually, in, in the process of being a Muslim, you're naturally going to say the Shahada. Okay. My friend's daughter... Took Shahada last week at Az-Zahra Masjid in Midland Park, New Jersey. That's great. She's 19. It was a special day. It was right after Jummah and her mom, with her mom's blessing. 
Um, Bully McGuire says, I have a very few friends, but I feel left out due to their major topics and interest in dunya and sins. But I also fear that I won't learn the dunya's customs by staying away. I don't know what to do. The dunya's customs can be learned by good Muslims, from good Muslims, I say. So I would say go to the masajid, go to the mosques, go to the places of Islamic activity and make friends there. If you're young, go to young Muslims and you'll see good Muslims there and you'll see sinners there. And you'll see everything, the whole gamut. But at least you'll be in the company of people who believe in Allah. And pray, and at least you're safe in that regard. As a UK viewer says, Aman C, should I wait for the UK program to release next year or join the current view? I would join the current view. That's an example of khairul birri ajilu. The best of good deeds is that which we do quickly. That has to do with things that, for your personal religion. As we said, it has nothing to do with contracts. It's for your personal religion. And so you could attend what you can, and you could watch the recordings. And people who do religiously watch the recordings, they benefit a lot. All right, one more question. Can you pray for my deceased father that last died last week? Grandfather, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enter him into Jannatul Firdaus without any hisab. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pour upon him from his mercy. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strengthen him in the questioning and make his grave a vast garden from the gardens of paradise. Mason Hakes, could you please talk about the main difference between the Salafi and the four madhabs? Asking for my family who are unaware of the issue. The Salafiyah is a fifth madhab. It is a fifth madhab. That's the truth. It has its own aqidah, its own view of spirituality, and its own law. The problem with it is that it cannot be traced back to one individual who becomes like the referee of what Salafiyah means. And that's why in their aqidah and in their fiqh, they have so many variations, right? There's a lot of variations. Huh? There's no usul really. Yeah, the usul, it, it, there's a lot of variation. In their usul, even. So a madhab is established by a human being who will stand before Allah and said, this is what I wrote, and Allah will judge him on that, right? And he and we hold him to be righteous and pious and correct and valid in what he said and did, okay? And so we will take our religion from him based upon that. Salafiyah tends to be more of an idea, okay? And it has imams, no doubt about that. All right, but I, it, it, according to Dr. Hatim and Hajj, who was a Hanbali, he said Salafiya has nothing to do with the Hanbali school. It is on its own, and its main problem, in my uh, perspective, in terms of its structure, is that it does not go back to one individual. So, what are is there the book of Salafiya? No, there isn't. Right on aqidah, on usul, or on the furua, the branch issues of the law. So that's one of the biggest issues, right? And secondly, the claim of the claim that we've got it figured out and these madhabs are invalid. These other madhabs are not valid. That time sometimes creeps up. Some say it and some don't. Some Salafis say that, that these madhabs, they're wrong, outrightly wrong, and uh, you, should not, you should study them, but you shouldn't worship Allah based upon them. And that I've heard. 
So we would say, no, that's totally wrong. If an if an ijtihad on a matter that is speculative is done correctly, then you can worship Allah based upon that. Hanafi, Shafi, Malik, your Hanbali. Did Imam Malik write any book on his own fiqh? He wrote the Muatta, which does not necessarily go into his usul, but his usul can be gleaned from there. And his student, Abdurrahman bin Qasim, who studied with Malik for 20-some years, more than that, eventually went back to Egypt. A Tunisian man named Sahnoun met him there and documented everything that Imam Malik taught. And that's the mother book in the Maliki school called Al-Mudawwana. Mudawwanat Sahnoon. And the whole book reads as, I asked Abdurrahman bin Qasim this. I asked him this. I asked him this. And Abdurrahman bin Qasim, he is Malik's best student. Of course, the most famous student is a Shafi. But the best student, spent the most time with him, was the Egyptian Abdurrahman ibn Qasim. Okay, who went to Egypt shortly after getting married, missed the birth of his son, did not have much money. So he realized, if I go to Egypt, I'm never coming back. He ended up saying, next year, I'll stay one more year, I'll stay one more year, I'll stay one more year. He ended up staying over 20 years. In the middle of that time period, somewhere in the middle, his mother realized, I don't think he's coming back. So she sent his son. And his son arrived there as a teenager. But, because he grew up never seeing his dad, but knowing his, your dad studying with Malik in Medina. The love of knowledge grew so much in the son that as soon as the son came, he came with his pen and paper and he started studying. He, he did not want to leave his dad's side for a minute. And he studied with his father, right? The, the Malik used to contrast and say, my son grew up in knowledge but he's out in the streets, you know, buying, selling, playing with the other kids. You grew up without a father, without knowledge, you know, never going, sitting with you, but he loves it. Okay. Divine traces. What is the thing with the metafic scandal? Um, you can go back to the early part of this live stream where we talked about some advice on releasing fatawa in general. I don't want to bash the person when everyone's already bashing them, right? But there's no need because everyone knows that the the, the fatwa was she's it should really be taken down to be honest. Um, what about people who can't master tashkila in recitation? Do we need to correct them? Sometimes it just upsets them. No, uh, if they can't and they're older and they just can't recite properly, I don't believe there's a need to. To, to correct them more than once one time yes two times three times but that's it if they just can't fix themselves they can't fix themselves why are quranic abrogations a thing in the first place shouldn't the perfect words come in the first revelations the reason is that this quran came to human beings and allah wanted to show us how human beings change slowly so you physically cannot change human beings once. Boom. It has to be with a gradation. Particularly in matters of addiction and in matters of... Um, uh, really, it's, it's, it's addiction, right? And, in, and it also in matters of physical possibility and impossibility. If you, have, if you never had a law, 
can you now be given a law book with 500 laws? Are you going to do it? You can't. You physically can't. So it's, I would say that there are matters of addiction, but also matters of pragmatics. Like it's physically not possible to go from having no law to establishing the whole law, right? And so that's one reason why, A, the Quran did not come down all at once. Came down munajjaman in parts, okay, over 23 years. Secondly, the issue of addiction. You cannot tell people, stop drinking, full stop. It has to enter their head that this is going to become prohibited soon, right? Even somebody who... Uh, I had an article on the blog post the other day where a man said that he can't become Muslim because there is no way in the world he will ever stop drinking, right? And so the sheikh said, well, come into Islam and bring your bottle with you, right? He was flabbergasted. He said, what? He said, yeah, Islam is a belief. The actions can come later. So even today, when, we, when the convert knows it's haram, the practical and wise shiuch, they say, yes, it's haram, but don't worry about it right now. Settle your beliefs first. Learn who is Allah, who is Prophet. Learn how to make wudu. Learn about the afterlife. Learn how to make salah. Later on, as your iman gets strong, with what iman is he going to remove the bottom, uh, kick, kick, kick the habit? With what iman? So you got to strengthen that iman first, and then eventually you'll kick the habit. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of Uh, a lot of uh, questions here. I said again, I don't. I have to read that hadith for myself and the commentaries. I'm not going to make up a commentary. Ozeir says the hadith says, "Why don't you curse so as to present the people the virtues of Sayyidina Ali and Muawiyah never cursed Ali?" Okay, I'll look into the, to that. It, it is. Imp- is it? True that seeing a dead person in your dream is the truth. Yes. The dead don't speak lies anymore in dreams. And yes, it does mean they are present to you in your dream. Whatever presence means, because it's not really known what's happening. Okay. Can we seek forgiveness of a sin even if we know that we're going to fall into it again in the future? The answer is yes. But you're not seeking forgiveness for a sin that you're going to perform. You're seeking forgiveness for past sins while in the back of your mind knowing that you're still stuck in this. Yes, you can do that. And, but you have to make dua that Allah removes you from it. What is your f- favorite scholar of all time? L- let's put it this way. If I had to meet one alim, if I had to meet only one alim, and I had an hour to meet one alim, and sit with him for one hour. Who would that item be? Let's ask that for everyone. You should all ask that question to yourself. And I would have to say that I would have a number of ulama in my mind. If I had one hour and I could sit with one hour, it, let's just put who would be in our mind as candidates. Firstly, Malik knew the sunnah better than anyone else. 
So if we're removing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Sahaba from this possibility, then it would be, Malik would definitely be one of them. Because I don't, the Prophet himself said about him, they would strike the livers of, they would strike the animals to travel, not finding anyone more knowledgeable than the scholar of Medina. So the Prophet himself called him the most knowledgeable. Of course, later on, the scholars said most knowledgeable of his time. Yes, but he was also the last of the three great generations, right? And the Prophet never said this about anybody else. So that's the one thing. And with the belief that truly what he says about the Sunnah of the Prophet, about even not just the Sunnah of the little actions, but even how to handle matters, was the most knowledgeable and wisest. So that would definitely be a candidate. Another candidate would be Abdul Qadr al-Jailani. And a third would be Abu al-Hassan al-Shadili. To have one hour just to sit with one of them. Imagine that. SubhanAllah. Same for studying with one. If you like could spend like your entire journey with one scholar. Oh, it would. It would. It would, it, it would be the same answer. Like you're. Okay. Now you get one teacher for life. Yeah, yeah it would probably be the same answer. It would probably be. If it's to spend time with them for life, Abdul Qadr al-Jailani or Abu al-Hasan al-Shadili. Because uh, I love that dhikr, right? And to spend time with them and they were such dhikrin. SubhanAllah. I heard that Abu al-Hasan al-Shadili was one of the most softest, easiest, and most welcoming and, and I should say, uh, accommodating of shiuch rather than those who were extremely, um, I don't want to say the word pushy, but those who pushed their students. He was almost like, no, come as you, however, whatever your strength is, and, and you know, apply whatever strength that you have. So that's what I, I remember reading about Abu Hassan al-Shadani. And Imam al-Shafi was very much like this too, right? Some others, they were rigorous. Malik was rigorous, Right? Like, you needed to be at a level of competence to even keep his company. Okay, a lot of us, they can't survive. SubhanAllah. Even in today's ulama, uh, many, many of Hashem, they're not playing games. You can't keep up, you move on. Whereas you go off to Al-Maghrib, and they have the opposite uh, approach to you. They were willing for you to be as weak as you want to be and, and slowly get better. Ladies and gentlemen, sadly and unfortunately, we must stop here. Let's try to um, Oh, Imam Nawawi, subhanAllah. Definitely Imam Nawawi would be up there with studying ulum, for sure, no doubt about that. Right? No doubt about that. Because I don't think there's anyone we quote more than Imam al-Nawi. He's quoted in hadith. He's quoted in, uh, in, in fiqh, of course, shafi fiqh. He's quoted in aqidah even because his sharh of Muslim has explanations there of like everything you can imagine in aqidah. Right. And everybody, oh, subhanAllah, a sister says here, Aisha Mukhtar from England. Everyone, I need your du'a. Delivering twins tomorrow, bi'ithnillah. Wow. May Allah Ta'ala bless them 
and make the birth go smoothly without any hardship to you or to them and make them come out full of health and make them a source of happiness for you in deen and dunya and akhirah. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make from them the imams of the community. Uh, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, رَبَّنَا هَبْلَانَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَاتِنَا قُرَّةَ عَيُنْ وَجْعَنَّا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا So may Allah ta'ala make them for you a qurrat ayn for you and your husband and make them from the leaders of this ummah. Jazakum Allah khairan everybody. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Wal'asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-lazina amanu aminu al-salihat. وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله Oh